On today's episode of the Keto Camp Podcast, we discuss the art, the science, the history of fasting with the author of the oldest cure in the world, brand new book, Steve Hendricks. It's at least generally a true principle from the way other diseases work. If you fast and you have, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, you fast and you lose 10% of your body weight, but you've got some sort of, you know, skin rash or something, you would think you would just lose 10% of the rash, right? If your body just burned everything equally and evenly. Well, that's not what happens. 100% of your skin rash may go away, but you've only lost 10% of your weight. What's going on? It seems as though the body is preferentially selecting the crap that it doesn't need and getting rid of it first, and then, you know, preserving all of the essential things. There's no evidence, for instance, that this protein burn during day two through four uh, is weakening your heart or uh, weakening your muscles. As soon as you refeed, your muscles are the same as they ever were, maybe even better. We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp Podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, Ben Azadi here, the host of the Keto Camp Podcast. You could find more of my information on our Instagram channel, at the Ben Azadi, and TikTok channel, at the Ben Azadi. Today's episode is a really good episode. I'm smiling. I don't know if you could tell by my voice, but I just totally love talking about fasting. In this book, The Oldest Cure in the World, Adventures in the Arts and Science of Fasting, is one of the best fasting books I've ever had the pleasure of reading. And we have the author, Steve Hendricks, on today's episode. You're going to learn so much about fasting. I'm so excited for you because many of you listening, you keto campers, you already practice fasting. And if you don't, you'll be inspired to practice fasting after today's conversation. So what do we cover today? Well, we discuss why Steve actually even decided to write a fasting book. His history of books have nothing to do with health and nutrition. They're more political. So why did he go into fasting? You're going to hear about the history of fasting. I always say there's nothing new about fasting. There's nothing new about keto. They might be new to you or nuanced, but they've been around forever. They're what's called ancient healing strategies. You're going to hear about ancient India, Christianity, the Romans, and how they utilize fasting. We're going to debunk some myths like Pythagoras requiring his students to fast for 40 days before they could enter his course. I shared that many times on stage. Is that actually true or is that a fallacy? We'll find out. We're going to discuss the case for actually eating a bigger breakfast. And this is a paradigm switch for myself and for many of you out there. Because for so many years, and still to this day, 
when I practice intermittent fasting, I tend to skip breakfast, have lunch, have dinner, and my eating window is typically mm, 1 p.m. to 6 p.m. But after the research from this book and today's conversation, I'm switching things up and you're going to probably switch things up and wait until he shares some of the research on early time-restricted feeding and the amazing benefits that occur when you actually eat earlier in the day and cut off your last meal by 3 or 4 p.m. He's going to get into the research of Professor Courtney Peterson and what this study showed after four days of increasing autophagy by 22% and activating your CERT1 longevity gene. We're also going to get into fasting for chemotherapy and some of Walter Longo's work regarding that. Fasting for high blood pressure, how it's like one of the best things you can do to reverse high blood pressure and why is the media and the doctors and big pharma not covering this? Well, you know why. There's no money to be made when you tell somebody to fast. We'll get into block fasting, which is extensive fasting. When he believes autophagy starts during a fast, what breaks a fast? Uh, Do you lose muscle when you fast or is it protein? And is that protein a good thing that you lose or is it a bad thing? We get into ketosis. We get into the American Heart Association, the uh, Diabetes Association, and the corruption regarding that. And we get into why eating before bed is one of the worst things you can do for yourself. We get into the gene, the receptor site, excuse me, called MTNR1B, which is a melatonin receptor site, and how this makes a lot of sense when we break it down, why you don't want to eat before bed, and so much more. Put your thinking cap on. Grab a pen and paper, take massive notes. If you think it, you got to ink it. You might want to listen to this episode two, three, four, five, ten 10 times and go watch the video version of this interview as well on our YouTube channel. All Keto Camp podcast interviews can be found video format on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Keto Camp, Camp with the K. So I can't wait to bring them on. Before I do, I do want to get to today's Apple podcast rating and review of the day. This is a five-star review from Heidi P.L. titled Learning So Much. First of all, happy birthday, Ben. Thank you so much, Heidi. I originally found your podcast because I'm obsessed with Dr. Nasha Winters, and I had been listening to every podcast I could find on her. Your interview with her was one of the best, my favorites. Since then, I've been learning so much from you and your guest about keto and fasting. I'm on a healing journey from breast cancer in your show has been a staple for me on this journey. Thanks for all that you do. Heidi, bravo to you. You are a three percenter. You are somebody who takes ownership and responsibility, somebody who applies, does the research and applies it. And you definitely are on a healing journey from breast cancer. Amen to that. I'm going to keep sending you healing thoughts and prayers. All of us listening right now, send Heidi healing thoughts and prayers for going and restoring her body her health to perfect harmony, peace, and health. You got this. And Nasha Winters is a great friend of mine. I love her. She's amazing. She's been on the show twice before. So go listen to those episodes. It's also available on our YouTube channel. And Heidi, thank you so much for taking the time to leave that rating and review. If you have not left the Keto Camp Podcast a rating and review, please do so. Leave an honest rating and review. And hey, if you want to actually ask a question in your rating and review, I'll answer that question on upcoming episode. So please pause, leave a review, ask a question. I can't wait to read it and answer your question on a future episode. 
One last thing before I bring on Steve Hendricks. If you want to learn more about my health coaching program, this is our signature course called the Keto Camp Academy, where I guide you. I'm your health coach. I am your, not just health coach, because it's actually much more than that. We talk about mindset. We talk about community. We talk about finances. I mean, it's a complete program. So I'm your coach. And we have three coaches on board, Alina, Becky, John, to assist and hold you accountable. If you want to learn more about our system, about our online program, head over to Instagram and follow me at the Benazadi. And then send me a message with the word energy, E-N-E-R-G-Y, and I'll give you some info. Let's see if it's a good fit. Hope to hear from you soon. All right, let's go right into this episode with Steve Hendricks. Steve Hendricks is a freelance reporter and the author of two previous books, one of which, The Unique Grave, which made several best of the year list. He has written for Harper's Outside Slate and the Washington Post. Hendrick lives in Boulder, Colorado with his wife, a professor of family law, and his dog, a border collie cross. Here is the author of The Oldest Cure in the World, Steve Hendricks. Okay, Steve Hendricks, welcome to the Keto Camp Podcast, my friend. It is so good to be with you, Ben. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. I was just telling you before I hit record how thoroughly impressed I am with your latest book, The Oldest Cure in the World. If you're watching on YouTube, you could see me holding up right here, Adventures in the Art and Science of Fasting. And something I just love to talk about is fasting, the history of fasting, autophagy, mTOR, all that good stuff. But I want to first say congratulations. The book is officially out and you did an amazing job with the book. That's very kind of you. Yeah, it was a, a labor of about three years, and uh, it's a it's a big meaty book. It's not like a skinny, you know, eighty page how to. Um, and I hope to tell a fuller story of fasting than had ever been told before. You can let me know if I succeeded or not. But my my hope was, you know, all this stuff hadn't been brought together in one book: the history of fasting, the science of fasting, and my own, of course, my own personal experiences hadn't been in a book before. But I thought it made for a nice uh, weaving of these three narratives into a structure that I hope works. I would say you succeeded, my friend. I really enjoyed it, and we're gonna we're gonna dive deep into the book. Uh, and you're right; it is a thick, meaty book. I, I went on Audible just to see how long it was audio-wise, and it was about 17 hours. I saw in there, <laughs> and then and then I was curious because I I've narrated my my book on Audible, and it was about seven hours. But 17 hours, I was wondering if you did it yourself, but you went the smart route and hired somebody, <laughs> didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, my publisher had probably spent enough time. My editor had spent enough time talking with me and was like, yeah, we don't want this guy doing it. We'll hire a professional person who sounds 20 times better than I do. So I said, that's just fine with me. Yeah. They saved you a lot of hassle for sure. Well, I'm curious. And I think my audience is curious. Why did you even decide to dive deep into fasting, the history of fasting? I mean, if you will look at the other books you've written, it's not really aligned with health and fitness and fasting. So what really sparked your interest with writing a book all about fasting? Yeah, so you're right. My previous two books are about politics. This is totally off and left field, it would seem for me, but not in my personal life. So I had started fasting in my uh, 30s. I'm 52 now. Um, and I, I first came to fasting for two reasons. One was like a lot of people, I started putting on weight in my 20s and I wanted to take it off. You can obviously do that with fasting. I don't think it's a perfect long-term solution for weight loss alone, but it can certainly be a useful tool. The other piece of it was that I um, 
well, to be frank, I have a, a, a very great fear of death, and I would like to put off my date with the Reaper as long as I possibly can. And so when I was younger, I had already begun looking at uh, longevity science, and it had first brought me to caloric restriction, which as you probably know, what it is, is just eating less. You know, if you're used to eating 2,000, 2,500 calories a day, you eat 1,500 or something like that every day. It is murderously hard to pull off because you feel hungry all the freaking time. You get great, we think, great longevity benefits in absolutely every lab animal that it's ever been tested in, they live longer. So there's no doubt that this is a really powerful tool for putting off disease and living longer. But I just, I was like, I don't, I don't want to live a life where I'm hungry all the time. As I was looking into caloric restriction, I stumbled on fasting. And it seemed... <laughs> too good to be true, right? Because it has many of the, the long-term health benefits of things like caloric restriction. And yet, for the most part, you don't feel hunger on it. And the, the, the miracle there, as you know, is when you burn your fat, you break your fat down into these ketone bodies, and those ketones suppress your hunger hormones. And so I thought, wow, this is really something to explore. And to sort of uh, make a longer story short, I, I wrote a big article about... Um, my experiences with fasting and the science of fasting at the time and a little bit of the history of fasting for Harper's Magazine uh, about 10 years ago. Um, I got approached to write a book then and I said, I just, I don't think there's enough here. I don't think the science is far enough along. I don't have enough experience. And what has happened over the last 10 years is the science has just blossomed in the most beautiful way. I probably could have written two books on just the science alone. I learned more and more about the history and then my own experiences with fasting uh, deepened. I had some big problems with my health in my 40s, and I have no doubt that I solved those through fasting and changing my diet to maintain the change. But so that's what the book ended up being. It grew out of this, uh, this long gestation of mine where I've been fasting now on and off for about 15 years, and the book ended up being this mix of where the science is now, what the history's been, and uh, some of my own, I think, telling experiences with fasting. Yeah, it's an interesting history that you were already doing it and it already sparked your interest and the science started to pour out and you decided to write a book about it. And the book is really well researched and we'll get into some of the studies that you reference. A lot of the studies are actually have changed my mindset on the way I adjust my schedule, my eating schedule, which we'll talk about. I think it'll change the mind of a lot of the keto campers listening. But you're right, Steve. The, the research is clear on, on caloric restriction. It's like a great way to extend life. But is it, you're extending lifespan, but your quality of life, like, do you want to be hungry all the time? And it's just <laughs> the Biosphere 2 project and all these studies, like that was a complete failure because their organs shrunk, they were miserable. But you're right, it is going to extend life when you restrict calories. But when I think back at our ancestors and I think back at animals, right, they never ate less food by grazing on it and pushing it away and saying, I'm going to eat a little bit in two hours, they would feast and then they would fast. They would, it would, they would follow this feast famine cycling. And that's kind of what we do with intermittent fasting. You're feasting with your meals and then you have a period of time where you're fasting. You can mobilize fat and produce ketones, which you can eat less by eating less often, but it's not always the case that you eat less by eating less often with intermittent fasting. So there's so many different ways to do it. And I love that you explained the difference. And actually, I want to ask you this question. What would you say is the difference between somebody who's cutting calories, but eating those meals throughout a 16-hour, 18-hour pattern, so small, frequent meals, but they're cutting calories, 
versus somebody who's cutting calories with a six hour eating window in those calories? So if you're assuming, I assume your question assumes the same number of calories, right? Just whether you're eating in a six hour window or a 16 hour window. Yeah. So the science is exceedingly clear that a 16 hour eating window is unhealthy, no matter what number of calories you're eating. Now, if you're eating fewer calories and you're on a calorie restricted diet, you're going to get some benefits and you may overcome some of the harm of eating in that 16 hour window. Okay. So, you know, the calorie restriction can help. However, what has become very clear, particularly in the last, say, five years, uh, at most 10 years, is that when we um, narrow our feeding window to, especially if we can get it down to about six or eight hours, we can start getting some real benefits and repairs. Because, you know, what happens is, well, first of all, our body, of course, is a self-healing machine. We've got damage going on at the cellular level all the time. Our body's fixing it all the time. If it didn't, you and I wouldn't be here a year from now right? Problem is, it only goes on at a very low level. And that's because our body's busy doing all the things it needs to do to make up our lives. And chief among that is digesting our food, processing the nutrients from that food, and putting those nutrients to work in every single cell of our body. When we give our bodies a break from that, evolution has equipped us with this beautiful mechanism where we start to increase all those repairs that were just kind of going on in the background before. Now, this really goes through the roof on a prolonged fast, a fast of seven days, 14 days, whatever. But it even, and this is the exciting part of the last few years, it even happens when we do a daily fast. And what scientists have discovered that's that's really interesting uh, to me, I certainly didn't know before working on this book was, so as I say, when you give your body a break from all that eating, it starts repairs. Well, it doesn't do that the second you put down the Big Mac, right? There's a metabolic cost to your body to switching from this eating metabolism, we can sort of think of it that way, these are broad generalizations, but that's good enough for here, to fasting metabolism. And your body doesn't want to make that cost if it thinks, oh, 30 minutes later, he's just going to put French fries or a Coke or, you know, grapes and carrots, whatever it is, into into his mouth, right? So it waits. Your body doesn't start ramping up those repairs until six hours after your last meal. And even then, it takes a bit of a longer time to ramp up and ramp up. By the time you add another six hours, so 12 hours from your last meal, your body is going into exponential repair. So most people, studies show that, you know, only about, I don't know, I think it was 10% of people or something eat in like a 12 hour window, even forget six or eight hours. Most people are eating in like a 14 hour or so window, maybe a 15 hour window. So if you're only getting nine hours each day of this fast, you're only in repair mode, deep repair mode for three hours and you're never getting to that exponential overdrive repair mode. If you narrow your window to let's say eight hours, you got 16 hours of fast. That's gonna give you 10 hours in repair mode. Four hours of that are gonna be in this overdrive repair mode. So that's why, you know, Intermittent fasting is a big fad, I know, but that's why it, in fact, is not, you know, just some bogus empty fad. It's a fad that actually works. It's a smart way of eating. And, you know, when you look at the places where people live the longest, they tend to just habitually eat from, you know, in their case, usually from about sunrise to sunset. Um, They weren't, you know, choosing this. They didn't, you know, look at any science. They just sort of evolved to to be doing that. Their cultures did. Uh, And we've now found that if you narrow it even further, you get even more benefits. And the other shocking piece, which I'm sure we'll get to, which I was not prepared to hear was 
better to do it earlier in the day than later in the day. Yeah, let's leave that cliffhanger about better to eat early in the day versus later. And we'll circle back to that in a few minutes. But I want to pick up where you just left off. A lot of people do say fasting is a fad or even keto is a fad. But the truth is they're, they're not fads, they're facts, right? They both have been around since the dawn of humankind. Uh, our ancestors fasted. By default, they were in ketosis. So keto technically is a metabolic process, not necessarily a diet. And there's nothing new about it. It's just nuanced. And I always explain that to people. These are what, what I call ancient healing strategies. They've been around for a very, very long time. You do a really good job in your book going into the history of where fasting kind of started in um, ancient India and the, the Christians. and what. So I would love if you would get into a couple of stories of the history of fasting, and then we'll fast forward to kind of modern day medicine, medicine with how we use fasting. Yeah, so, you know, fasting existed in virtually every single culture. From the first time we, you know, as soon as writing appears in a culture, fasting appears with it. Now, back then, so this was, you know, let's say 3,000 years ago, those folks were not fasting for health. Now, they didn't really separate, you know, health, body, spirit, mind, and things. It was all just one to them. But they were really doing it to appease the gods. And you can understand why that would be so, right? Because if you fast, you have physiological, uh, physiological changes that puts you in a more contemplative state. Your blood pressure drops, your brain waves change, you become more, uh, you, you can at least in some cases become more mellow. If you take it to extremes, particularly if you fast without water or uh, for long periods of time, you can start to get visions. So to the primitive mind, that was seen as a portal to the divine. You were communicating with, um, you know, beings beyond us, and so um, fasting shows up, as you say, in the ancient Vedic religions of ancient India, and it comes down in different forms to ancient Hinduism, um, Buddhism, Jainism, and you see it in ancient China as well, and Taoism and Confucianism and in Christianity and Judaism. Now, just because it's in all these places doesn't mean they use it the same way. Fasting turns out to be this really malleable tool, and different religions adopted it much more strongly or much less strongly than others. One of the interesting things that happened in religion, in the ones that really took to fasting, was it had a way of expanding and just taking over. And you can understand why that is too. If a little bit of fasting brings you closer to God, if it makes you holy, well, how about a little bit more fasting and a little bit more fasting? And so, unfortunately, a lot of the history of fasting, and as you, you know from the book, I spend a big chunk of time on this, particularly in Christianity, is um, fasting is used in this brutally ascetic and extremely unhealthy manner in order to increase your holiness with God. You, you know, in some cases, starve yourself to death. So uh, fasting is this really interesting tool for religions, but they have to do this dance between finding the right mix of how much is useful for furthering their contemplation and so on, and how much just takes them over the deep end. That said, let me speak about ancient fasting for health. That doesn't really appear until the ancient Greeks, um, roughly about the time of Hippocrates, four or 500 years BC. They were really, you know, fasting for health pops up here and there a little bit, but they were the first ones who really took it and ran with it a little bit. And one of the reasons I wrote this book was to try to set the record straight because there were a lot of myths out there. There are a lot of myths that are propagated either in books or um, on the internet. Um, you know, I, I hope we're demonstrating that the internet is a use useful <laughs> 
tool, but as we also know, it's a machine for replicating lies. And once junk yeah, gets out there, sword. yeah. So you hear all these stories that that basically imply the ancient Greeks, you know, absolutely knew what fasting was. You know, that Plato said, "I fast for a mental and physical efficiency," and that you know that Hippocrates knew what fasting was. That Plutarch said, "Instead of medicine, fast a day." Not a word of it's true. The fact is, is that they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know almost anything about the body because there was a taboo on dissection and looking inside the body. So they had to make up these fanciful myths about how the body worked and they fit fasting into those myths. And you find these, you know, sort of crazy things about, um, oh, what? Like if you have hiccups, for example, you can cure it either by fasting or by completely overeating. And and you you wonder the ancient reader looking at this and saying, well, thanks, but which the hell should I do, right? So most of what you see in the ancient literature is confused. However, the fact that doctors went early to fasting does tell us something. They realized that there was something there. And every once in a while, you do find a doctor who stumbled onto something good. Just as one example, there was an ancient physiologist named Erisistatris, who um, I always stumble over his name, who had said that uh, for epilepsy, one should uh, exercise a lot and fast. That was completely lost. 2,000 years later or so, at the start of the 20th century, we did in fact learn that um, fasting could cure childhood epilepsy. So they were figuring things out. And had there been a more, just even slightly more sophisticated knowledge of the body, you could perhaps have seen a medicine of fasting evolving and taking root. Didn't happen. It just got completely washed out by all these kooky theories uh, until, you know, well, until the dawn of reason uh, with the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. Um, so only in the last, you know, say three, four hundred years did doctors really begin to kind of figure out that fasting was a super powerful tool for health. And then only in the last about 100, 150 years has it become a regular part of many doctors' practice. Interesting. All right. So I have a couple of questions for you on that. Fact or fiction? Dr. Mark um, Mattson, a neuroscientist, shared that ancient Romans accidentally discovered the powers of fasting this way uh, when individuals were having these epileptic seizures. Their interpretation of that was they are possessed by demons, right? So they would lock them in a room, no food, no water, essentially dry fast them come back a few hours later and say, oh, we starved the demons out of them, essentially putting them to ketosis as we know that's a powerful tool for epilepsy. So have you heard that story before? Or is there any, is that fact or fiction? I've heard him share that before. Well, so it's complete news to me. I've never heard that story and I've done a fair amount of research in Roman fasting. Um, but Mark Matson knows his stuff. <laughs> yeah. So if he says it's true, when we get off this podcast, I'm going to look into it. What I can tell you is the most popular Roman uh, method of fasting arose from this school called Methodism because these guys had reduced all of medicine to a few very simple methods. One of the things they used was fasting, and it was, in fact, it was a short fast. It was, you get a fever, we'll fast you three or four days, and we'll see how you do. So it's entirely possible that they applied that to epileptics who they thought were possessed. So, you know, jibes, it's conceivable. Yeah, I believe he shared that in his TEDx talk. So that could be a good direction to, I'm going to go revisit that. But he did share that. Second thing, fact or fiction, Pythagoras, the Greek mathematician, would require his students to fast for 40 days before they could enter his course so they could be in a peak mental state. Fact or fiction? Uh 
complete fiction. And um, one of the idiots who propagated this was a fellow named Steve Hendricks, who just came out with a book called The Oldest Cure in the World. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, seriously. Um, seriously, yeah, there are um, a lot of great looking sources <laughs> that claim this. Uh, and so this appeared in my my cover story, Jesus, for uh, for Harper's Magazine that I mentioned that I wrote 10 years ago. And so I'm not just taking the blame for it, but also saying the sources looked good enough that it got by, you know, an ed- two or three editors and a fact checker. So, but in fact, when I went and dug deeper, as you know, you hope authors do when they're writing books, uh, I found it's bogus. Those those sorts of stories were put forth by Pythagoras's followers to boast his his legacy long after he was dead. Incidentally, they were the same people who put forward the bogus theory that he came up with the Pythagorean theorem. He didn't. He wasn't even a mathematician. He was just a numerologist and played with numbers, but, you know, it wasn't his theorem, but it's got his name. So you can tell they were pretty effective at their propaganda. That is super interesting, Steve. You know, I might have gotten that from you, uh, the the 40 days of fasting myth. I might have gotten it from Dr. Fung, who Dr. Fung probably got it from you. But I do tend to lecture on on fasting, and I have shared that. And now I'm going to say, hey, you know, (laughs) I was wrong. It's actually a fiction. So I'm glad I asked the question. Now I know the truth. And thank you for sharing that with me. Yeah. As as I say in the book, the only thing worse than being wrong is being wrong in print. But I guess being wrong in video as well is, uh, you know... (laughs) just as bad. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, we're always learning. And I'm, I'm glad that I asked the question because now I could do better and share, you know, I was actually wrong and here's the truth. So I appreciate you um, sharing that with me. Hey, Keto Camper. What if there was an easy way to help detoxify your body, ease stress, unwind, and hey, even burn more calories? What I'm talking about is sauna usage. Now, there's a lot of studies that show the benefits of using a sauna and it could be kind of complicated because they're expensive and typically you have to go to a facility to use a sauna. What I love about my sauna is that it's a blanket that I use at the comfort of my own home. I use the one from Bond Charge. And sauna blankets work by raising your heart rate to that of physical exercise so you burn calories while you're relaxing. And you could burn up to 600 calories in one session. Sweating also helps flush out toxins like heavy metals, from your body and elevating your heart rate while relaxing releases endorphins, which can leave you feeling euphoric. I feel like I just got a 60 minute massage when I get out of this thing. It works by using infrared light, which heats the body directly rather than the air around you like a traditional sauna. This means you get the same benefits at a lower heat. You also don't need to have your head in the heat like a traditional sauna. It's very easy to use. You can enjoy a session of 30 to 45 minutes while relaxing, reading, watching TV, or meditating. It's easy to clean. It's low EMF, especially compared to other brands out there. Simple and easy to get set up. And even more important, you, Keto Camper, are offered a nice coupon code for Bond Charge's products, including their infrared sauna blanket. So head over to bondcharge.com slash ketocamp and use the coupon code Keto Camp at checkout to get 15% off your order. We'll drop that link down below along with the coupon code in the podcast notes. Okay, let's get right back to this episode. And by the way, your chapters, I don't know if you came up with them or your publisher, but the chapters are so cleverly named. I'm gonna I'm gonna name a few for the audience, but everybody go get the book. It's available now. Criminal quackery, right? Fasting for a cure. 
Uh, I forget I have four limbs. So that's where you get into the history of fasting a little bit. The most complicated cage, this cheap, simple, and vulgar remedy, arresting my decline. Uh, what are some other cool ones here? A gentle deprivation. That's good. I love that one. So very creative with your chapters. And if you think about fast forward to the year we live in, 2022, the standard American diet, the standard American way of living is kind of like the complete opposite of what we should be doing to kind of heal the body, achieve metabolic flexibility. And you gave the example, I think, in the book regarding Sachin Panda's work and his app showing that people are eating like 15 to 16 hours a day. You referenced it earlier. And just to add to that, I have a colleague, his name is Dr. Don Klum. He did a patient population survey where he had hundreds of patients document every time they ate something. So anytime they raised glucose and insulin and started that digestive process, it could have been from kombucha to a steak to a protein bar, but anytime they did that, document it. And uh, he determined that they were eating on average 17 to 23 times per day, which is in this constant fed state, like you said, never getting to the six hour, 12 hour and longer and it's one, I believe, one of the fastest ways to develop disease in your body is to eat frequently and be in this growth mTOR phase. What would you say to that? Is that, is that a fast way to age yourself? It seems likely to be. Like that's a slightly out of my uh, realm of expertise. But yeah, what, you, what you're saying, Ben, seems to make uh, total sense to me. And, you know, it's understandable that people would do that because uh, we've been told for, you know, we're probably not being told this by our doctors today, but it wasn't that long ago that we were being told you need to just eat all day, all day, all day, and that'll smooth out your insulin spikes, right? So your glucose and insulin won't be going crazy. Well, it turns out we may actually, you know, a few of those spikes are just fine. It just so long as they don't get completely out of hand. And yes, the, the, the hard thing about if you're eating 17 to 20 odd times a day is you probably are spreading that over, as you're saying, not six or eight hours. You're spreading it over 13, 14, 15, 16 hours. And that may be the problem where I have a slight just hesitation. And it's, it's a question about this. What... I have found certainly personally, and I think where the research is pointing, this is young research, it's not, this is not set in stone, so don't take this as we know the, you know, the answer to this one yet. However, is that when I, for instance, eat in a six-hour window as I do each day, it doesn't matter to me whether I eat in three distinct meals, whether I graze throughout that six hours, whether I eat in three meals and have two snacks, you know, kind of in between each meal, it seems not to matter at all for anything that I can detect, right? Whether my sleep changes, whether my energy diminishes, whether I have food crashes, which I have had before in my life on other eating patterns. Um, and the research seems to bear out that there's not a penalty for grazing so much if you're grazing in a narrow window. So, um, so grazing per se may not be a terrible thing. It could be the grazing over a wide number of hours that's the more terrible thing. It's an open question, but I raise that. Yeah, it's a good question, and it's a fair point. Now let's go into the case you make in the book and some of the latest research on eating a bigger breakfast and early time-restricted feeding. So share some of the research that you came across and put in your book regarding that. Yeah, so it's just really incredible, um, the amount of research that has been done on breakfast skipping. So, you know, most people who do what I call daily fasting and what most people call intermittent fasting, the researchers call it time-restricted eating, most people who do that skip breakfast. 
they put their, you know, have her, their first meal of the day at noon or something. They eat until seven or eight at night and they're done. That's the way I did it until I started researching this book. I'd always, virtually always been a breakfast skipper. Never had much interest in breakfast. Love eating dinner, love eating out late. Love it when I'm in Europe and I can have dinner at 9 p.m., 10 p.m. It's fantastic. Turns out, sadly, that appears very strongly now. The research is very convincing. It's not healthy. And the reason that that seems to be the case is our circadian rhythms have simply hardwired us to process food more efficiently earlier in the day. So morning to, let's say, early to mid-afternoon. Starting in the later afternoon, we become much less efficient uh, at, at processing food. And by nighttime, we're just terrible at it. So um, the variable that has been studied the most in this regard is insulin. And so, you know, there, this, this affects you in all kinds of ways. But as we know, insulin is important because it's moving the glucose from our meals out of our bloodstream, out of our arteries, where it can do us damage and into the cells where we want it. If we eat later in the day, just to give you one example of what happens is our insulin making process has slowed down. We have less insulin at the ready. When we eat, we don't move stuff out of our arteries as efficiently. And so our, our glucose lingers in our blood vessels where over time it will ding them up and lead to diseases. So there, there are some just fascinating studies exploring all kinds of metabolic aspects of how efficiently we process things at different times of day. And, um, and I should go back and say, there seems to be absolutely nothing we can do to change these circadian rhythms. Doesn't matter if you work the night shift, doesn't matter when you sleep, we are just wired by nature to process food this way. So one of the most fascinating studies to me was this uh, study that was done on attempted suicides in Sri Lanka, where the farmers there have just been completely decimated by the cruelties of the market. And many of them try to kill themselves um, by taking their pesticides. Farmers who had attempted, and it was, it was thousands, I don't remember the number, maybe 10,000 or so in, in this study who were studied. Farmers who took their pesticides in the morning were twice as likely to die before they were found and rushed to the hospital as farmers who took their pesticides in the evening. And the reason is because the body had processed those pesticides super efficiently in the morning, got it absolutely everywhere throughout their body, and they were too far gone to be saved by the time they were found. Not so with the folks who had uh, taken the pesticides in the evening. There are also these other studies where you take, let's say, healthy groups of individuals. You feed them the exact same meal at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. 7 a.m. after that meal, you test them, they're fine. After the 7 p.m. meal, some of them will test pre-diabetic. You do the exact same thing with pre-diabetics, and some of those pre-diabetics will test fully diabetic in the evening meal when they didn't at all after the morning meal. And they will stay diabetic all the way until the next morning or even until lunch the next noon because that's how bad the body is at processing nutrients throughout the evening. Can I just add to that? You know, part of the reason, I'm not sure if, if you saw some of this in the research, but um, it's really interesting. Part of the reason that happens is because there's... Um, a receptor site. It's called MTNR1B, which is a melatonin receptor site. And when you are going to bed, obviously you're producing melatonin, you're releasing melatonin, but melatonin suppresses insulin. So when you eat before bed, glucose spike, 
you produce melatonin, you don't get the insulin to drive the glucose down. And then you have these high levels of glucose, like you said, looking like you are pre-diabetic or waking you up in the middle of the night. So just to add to your point, Steve. Exactly right. Yeah. And that melatonin production starts, you know, we think, oh, it starts probably what, seven, eight o'clock at night. No, it's like four in the afternoon. That melatonin starts getting released, start shutting down the pancreas, uh, the insulin production in your pancreas. And that's why that late afternoon eating is also a problem, not just the eating at nine o'clock at night. So that's convincing, but you also have some more research. I know you referenced Professor Courtney Peterson, who I'm going to reach out to to bring on my podcast. But if, if you remember some of the research that she has come out with uh, regarding the study looking at the CERT1 gene and looking at the LC3A for autophagy. Yeah, uh, Courtney Peterson's work, I think, is the best work in time-restricted eating, intermittent fasting, that, that I have seen. She does these amazingly tightly controlled studies. See, one of the things you have to really look at when you get a dietary study or a time study is they say, well, you know, we put some people in this pattern and other people's in this, in, in this pattern and compared them and we found blah, blah, blah. Well, did you control what they ate? That is a an extremely uh, difficult and extremely uh, costly process to do. And if you don't control what they eat, how do you know? I mean, you're telling them generally what to eat and all this. How do you know that putting them on, say, a shorter feeding window doesn't, let's just say, change their appetite for fats or sugar or whatever, that they would eat more or less of one or the other? So um, she did these fantastic studies where... I mean, she prepared every, had her text prepare every ounce of food in the lab. The people in the study had to eat every single, you know, morsel of it, either in front of a tech or over Zoom in front of a tech. I mean, they were just beautiful, beautiful, meticulous studies. And the ones that you're referencing were ones where she took people. So we know that it's healthier to eat in a narrow window. The question is when, what is the best window? Um, as I've suggested, the breakfast skipping studies and the, you know, Sri Lanka study and all that of suicides suggest eating in the morning is better. So she went to test that. And what she did was she fed two groups of volunteers the exact same food in either a six-hour window or 12-hour window. Both windows started an hour or two after the people woke up. There was a little bit of flexibility for their schedules and ran either, you know, ballpark from 8 a.m. in the morning till 2 p.m. in the afternoon or 8 a.m. in the morning till 8 p.m. at night. Okay. In just four days on that study, eating in that new pattern of six hours versus the 12 hours, she discovered just incredible changes for that very brief amount of a change. One of the changes was to the CERT1 gene. As you mentioned, CERT1 is nicknamed the longevity gene. Uh, it's uh, associated with you know keeping our telomeres tighter. Our telomeres are like the plastic tips on the end of our shoestrings, except they're on the ends of our DNA, and they keep our DNA from unraveling. And the healthier our telomeres, in theory, the longer we're going to live. Uh, it's associated also with improvements in other longevity markers, like reduced uh, oxidization and things like that. In just four days... The CERT1 protein, which tracks the expression of the CERT1 gene, I believe increased about 10%. Pretty impressive for a change of four days and not changing a single thing about what you eat. Now that's good, but let's look at that LC3A gene. When she looked at the LC3A protein, what, what LC3A is in charge of is one aspect of the process of autophagy, which is just this cellular recycling thing that I'm guessing most of your listeners are familiar with, where the body... Uh, when it is confronted with old and worn out parts, it either has to live with them, in which case they become disease. It can repair them if it can, but if they're too far gone, its best option, if it can and has the time, is to recycle them. It usually doesn't have the time. Well, 
what she found was the recycling process through tracking this LC3A gene went up, I forget the exact number, but it was something like 22%. So, you yeah, know, a that's leap what I have in, in my notes, 22%. Yeah, yeah, a leap in nearly a quarter in your cellular recycling in just four days, not of changing a single morsel of what you eat, right? But of changing, you know, uh, when you eat. And I would add one other thing. She chose this comparison of the six-hour window versus the 12-hour window because surveys show that people eat within 12 hours. That's what surveys show. You ask people how, you know, when do you eat, da, da, da. They say 12 hours, right? If you track them on an app, take a picture every time, as you mentioned, every time you uh, eat something caloric, you find that they're eating across 15 hours. So this, this boost of 10% in CERT1 and 22% in LC3A were compared to a 12-hour eating window, which we already know is restricted. If, my guess is if you compared it to the average American's 15-hour window, window, you might find, you know, another, you know, big chunk of boost going on. So they are extremely uh, impressive studies in what they found and extremely convincing studies because of how beautifully uh, the controls were in this randomized controlled trial. Yeah. And, and fair point about comparing it to more of a 15 hour schedule that might give you even more benefits. Uh, that kind of flies in the face of some people who say, that autophagy doesn't occur until around 24 hours or so. I know there's a lot of variables and it's kind of hard to test autophagy without going into a lab like they did in this study. So if you had to guess, sorry to put you on the spot here, but if you had to guess, I know it depends on if they're eating breakfast versus lunch and dinner and vice versa, but you know, just in general, some, somebody doing a, an 18-6, so they're eating 12 p.m. to 6 p.m. and then they're fasting outside of that. When would you determine or guess, hypothesize that autophagy starts to, to kick in at that point? Yeah, so you're right. We don't know um, is, is the short answer, but I will, give, I, will, I will give you a better answer than that, <laughs> more satisfying answer anyway. <laughs> um, and so I think one thing to think of, you know, we also hear similar things about ketosis. Oh, you don't go into ketosis until X number of hours, right? In fact, what's happening is it's more of a sliding scale. You ease your way into it. Um, and there's going to be some variability. For some people, it may be X hours. For someone else, it's X plus two hours. But my guess would be, so you remember how I said um, it takes us six hours to get into repair mode after our last uh, meal. We have to go six hours. And then another six hours till that repair mode goes into overdrive. My guess is, is that going into autophagy would coincide with the start of that, you know, 12 hour, you know, going into overdrive crossing line. So I would say, again, big caveat here, this is a guess, 12 hours. But, you know, we could find it's more like 14 or 16. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good guess. And I, and I would also say if you're more active during your fast, you might get it faster. If you're more metabolically flexible, you might get it faster versus somebody who's sedentary and metabolically inflexible might take a little bit longer. So there's a lot of variables. I like the idea of it hitting at the 12-hour mark. I'm good with that. Hopefully that is the case. <laughs> um, in, in your book, you also referenced Dr. Walter Longo's research, and I've done some work with his, his Prolon group, and so has my mentor, Dr. Pampa. He's done some work with him. And something that was interesting that you shared in the book was fasting uh, as it relates to chemotherapy. And I love the way that you described doing fasting as somebody is going into chemo kind of protects the good cells and lets the chemo go out the bad cells. If you could kind of dig up some of that research that you shared in the book. 
Yeah, so uh, Walter Longo at the University of Southern California, who's really done, you know, just the most amazing work on this. His metaphor is, is this. He says, imagine that you've got two armies in a field. The good guys are your healthy cells and the bad guys are the, are the cancer cells. Fasting, um, when, you, when you fast, your body, your cells reject exterior inputs. They, you know, uh, turn in on themselves and they lick their wounds and they do these repair processes that we've talked about. But imagine you've got these, these armies in a field. So when you fast, you're effectively giving a command to your healthy cells, kneel down, protect yourself behind your shields. Cancer can't hear that. So when you're fasting, they don't get the, the memo to kneel down. They're still wanting to eat up everything that they can because their mantra, of course, is grow at all costs. So that's wonderful. You know, Longo was Longo said, well, this is great because then we can throw in the chemotherapy or we can throw in the radiation, which is like just mowing down the cancer with bullets. And because our healthy cells are kneeling down behind their shields, they're not going to get dinged up as much uh, by the chemotherapy or the radiation. And that, in fact, is exactly what happens. There have been trials now in humans that show that when you fast someone during their chemo treatment, so you've got a chemo treatment on Monday, you start fasting on, let's say, Saturday, and then on Tuesday, you break your fast. People who do that find that they have less nausea, less vomiting, fewer headaches, less fatigue. It's just a fantastic improvement to their quality of life. Now, what's even better about that is, the theory is, is that you can then increase the dose of the chemotherapy or the radiation because the patient can tolerate it more, right? Chemo and radiation is always this dance between, well, how much can we give to kill the cancer without killing the patient, right? So we ought to be able to give more chemo and radiation, kill more of the cancer, hurt the patient less. Now, we know for a fact that that is what happens in lab animals. There are trials ongoing right now. They appear very promising. It does seem to happen in humans as well, but we don't know that for certainty. But just at a minimum, the fact that your chemotherapy won't be as miserable as it had been before is a huge, huge breakthrough. And the other, I would say, advance that um, Longo has done is people often get scared of fasting, right? A lot of people don't want to fast. Oncologists don't want to fast their cancer patients. He got massive resistance to fasting. So he came up with a fasting mimicking diet which in the case, there are a couple of them out there in the case of uh, the chemotherapy one, it's called chemo leave. And it's a couple, maybe 250 or so calories per day during this little fasting period that you do. And it puts you into a fasting like state, you go into ketosis. And so it's a lot more um, reassuring, both to doctors and to patients who don't want to fast. Now, my guess is this is just a guess. My guess is you would probably get more benefit if you actually fasted. Um, we do find that in general, a, a true water-only fast compared to a modified fast when you're taking some calories does seem to repair and heal illness more thoroughly, more quickly. However, if fasting puts you off and you're not going to do it and you need the fasting mimicking diet to get through it, by all means, um, it, it's, a, it's a brilliant innovation and he has been widely applauded for it as he should be. Yeah, right on. I, I agree. His research is so amazing. And it's a great tool for somebody who's going through chemo. And it's a good balance, at least the fasting mimicking diet part of it. It's a good balance between not allowing that person to go to get too cachexic and uh, being able to not lose too much weight, but still get the benefits of fasting. Hey, when was the last time you bit into a juicy burger or a perfectly cooked steak and thought to yourself, 
this is the best thing I've ever tasted. If it's been a while, it's probably because most meat products are conventionally raised, which not only affects the flavor profile, but significantly diminishes the beneficial nutrients and minerals. And believe it or not, even products that are labeled as grass-fed or ethically raised to make you think they're high quality are often finished on grain or in factory farms, which is why I am so excited to share something with you today that will not only help you avoid the hormones, antibiotics, and pesticide residues that diminish the taste of conventionally raised meat, but could also save you nearly $1,000 over the next year on your grocery bill. And the best part? This may be the best tasting thing you've had in a long time. So what the heck am I talking about? I'm talking about Wild Pastures Meat Delivery. They provide the highest quality meats from small, regenerative, family-run farms here in the United States that prioritize sustainability and animal welfare. Their beef is 100% grass-fed. Their pork and poultry are pasture-raised, something you won't find anywhere in the grocery store, resulting in meats that are not only healthier for you, but also better for the environment. One of the reasons why me and my fiance Natasha loves wild pastures is that we can opt out out of supporting harmful conventional farming practices and instead support small family-run farms without spending a fortune. And the convenience doesn't stop there. They offer delivery straight to your door so you can enjoy delicious, high-quality meats without even leaving your house. No matter where you are in the lower 48 states, Wild Pastures has got you covered. Not only is this the most convenient way to get your meat products, but Wild Pasture meats are better for you nutritionally, and they're higher in the total nutrients, phytonutrients, antioxidants, key fatty acids, vitamins, minerals, proteins, and amino acids. And today, for keto campers, for a limited time, you can get 20% off every box plus free shipping for life and... $15 off your first box. This is a crazy deal, and I hope you take advantage of it. So make the switch to Wild Pastures today and save nearly $1,000 on your grocery bill while feeling healthier and enjoying the best tasting meats of your life. All you need to do is go to the link in the podcast notes down below. Everything is already applied. All you got to do is click that link, customize your order, and you'll have some delicious, healthy tasting meats very soon. Head to the podcast notes down below, click the link, enjoy your wild pastures. Okay, let's get right back to this episode. I know that you also speak about high blood pressure. And I love that you kind of call out big pharma in a way. And they're kind of my Goliath too, because I've been preaching the message since 2008 that the body is built to heal itself. And a lot of the information we've been fed it's kind of the complete opposite in order to get healthy and live a long life. I mean, just look at what the American Diabetes Association says about diabetes, and it's not reversible. You could only manage it, but I've seen it, you know, time after time be reversed. And the food given to patients in a hospital going through chemotherapy is the processed junk that could actually contribute to cancer growth. It's like we have things backwards. So I like that you call them out. And look, there's a time and place for conventional medicine, and thank God for conventional medicine. But there's a lot that we can do, and fasting is a free, powerful tool. But let's relate fasting and the power of fasting to high blood pressure, which is so common and leads to a lot of other problems. But what can fasting do for high blood pressure? 
Yeah, well, so if you listen to the American Heart Association, nothing. <laughs> but if if you listen to people <laughs> right. who study it uh, quite a bit. So yeah, the American Heart Association, as you were referencing with the Diabetes Association and all, they will tell you it's there on their website. Uh, high blood pressure cannot be cured. It can only be managed. Uh, and I question the, in the book, is that because, would, would that opinion have anything to do with the fact that they're taking millions of dollars each year from you know the pharmaceutical companies who manage hypertension? So we have studies going back 20 years showing that high blood pressure can be reversed, all right, with, with, with prolonged water-only fasting. It can also be reversed in a little more time with a modified fast. But these studies from 20 years ago found that um, in 10 days of prolonged water-only fasting, um, something like 80% of high blood pressure patients uh, could achieve normal blood pressure, get off their medications, go on and live a normal life with this supposedly irreversible disease. And one of the you know truly incredible things about this was um, the average in one of these papers, the average drop in this study of blood pressure was 37 over 13 points. That's 37 the systolic over 13 diastolic. That is a huge drop. That's better than I think any um, blood pressure medication can do. And those who had the worst high blood pressure uh, had the best outcomes. Their uh, drop, I believe, was 60. That's six zero systolic points. Okay, these are the largest drops in blood pressure from absolutely any therapy in uh, the peer-reviewed scientific literature. Better than pills, better than procedures, and so the cure is out there. Now, there's only one small caveat. Okay, the small caveat is, is you know, these um, studies were uh, done at the True North Health Center in Northern California, which is a, a fantastic place. They've got their problems, and I write about those too. But you know, they're doing a lot of good out there. They're a small little fasting clinic in the scheme of things. They're not big pharma. They cannot pay for a randomized controlled trial. So these aren't randomized controlled trials. But I'll tell you what they are <laughs> in order to hopefully convince your listeners that it's worth taking a look at. And that's this. They just took every single person who walked in the door with high blood pressure for some period of years and fasted, didn't cherry pick, didn't exclude anyone. You had high blood pressure, you fasted, you were in the study. And they achieved these incredible results with that group. And if you talk to Dr. Alan Goldhammer, who's the doctor who founded and still uh, runs True North, um, you know, he'll, he'll tell you, you know, something like, and I forget the exact number, but it's 90 some percent of the people who come in, if they fast long enough and they have high blood pressure, will uh, become normal tensive. They will have normal blood pressure again. So um, there have been a couple of follow-ups to these studies. Uh, there was one out just in the last year or two, and it's just not making uh, a dent at all with uh, organizations like the Heart Association or let alone, uh, alas, you know, cardiologists and primary care physicians. Well, I mean, you can't put fasting in, in a pill and you can't profit from it. So it makes sense that it's not making a lot of traction because in fact, a lot of money is to be lost from not just big pharma, but big food companies like General Mills, Kellogg's, et cetera, and people start adopting fasting. Um, but to your point, Steve, such a great tool. And of course, work with a practitioner if you have high blood pressure, any condition and apply it the right way. But oh my gosh, fasting is one of the best tools to check the box on any health benefit you're seeking, honestly, and there's different ways to do fasting. I want to finish and land the plane with you speaking about, I call block fasting, Steve, so three or more days, a longer fast than extended fast. Uh, when I first started to research some of Dr. Thomas Seafried's work uh, on fasting from Boston College, uh, 
who wrote the book Cancer as a Metabolic Disease, he would um, reference this process called maximum autophagy, where he would use blood glucose and blood ketones to uh, gauge if somebody was in maximum autophagy, right? And he would get people there in about seven days um, on average. So I wanted to experiment and do a, a long fast and see how long will it take for me to achieve that maximum autophagy. And I got it in about three and a half days because I'm very metabolically flexible. But I ended up just doing five days total and then breaking it low and slow. And I was doing it the right way. And I was guided. So that's my longest fast. Five days, water fast. I broke it low and slow. I remember feeling very introverted uh, more than usual. My fiance was telling me like, why aren't you talking to me? I was just like totally in my head, being like creative in my mind. And I had some weird lower back pains, which I just guessed like was autophagy healing that area from back pain I used to have when I was younger. That was my experience with the longer fast. But what was your first experience like with the longer water fast, Steve? Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the fast that I wrote about in that Harper's Magazine article 10 years ago was uh, this 20-day fast that I did. And that was my first really long fast. Um, and, you know, all over the map is the short answer, which I think is common. So a lot of people find that they have some difficulty, particularly in the early, early going. If you're unhealthy, um, you're really going to have difficulty uh, most of the time. You'll have all kinds of symptoms. You could have skin rashes. You could have nausea. You could have headaches. You could have fatigue. But similar to you, I kind of, I, I don't know if retreated into myself is, is the right way of saying it, but that's, those are the words that come to mind. It was something in that direction. And as I'd mentioned earlier, you know, there was, we have, you know, 3,000 years of religious history telling you that uh, you become more contemplative quite often when you fast. Now, other people become hyperactive. They become more productive than they've ever been in their lives. Uh, they use fasting as a tool for, you know, writing their book or their screenplay or whatever it is. That was not my experience. So I would say it was a, a sort of series of gentle waves. Oh, no, they weren't always gentle, but a series of waves, and they were never too traumatic. Sometimes I would have a day where I was just feeling great, and I just felt at home in my body, and I felt very thoughtful, and it was great. Other days, it was more like lying on the couch and just thinking, all right, when is the energy going to come back, Right. And uh, certainly in my experience with fasting and certainly with talking with a, a bunch of fasters and fasting doctors, that's extremely common. So on those somewhat shorter fasts, I will, I will tell you this. Most people feel like crap on days, say, roughly two to four, maybe two to five. And uh, the fasting doctors who I've interviewed think the reason for this is, so, you know, we know that the body normally runs on glucose, right? And then we know that when we fast, we switch, we, we run on our fat, which get broken down into ketones. We run on those. Okay. You don't make an overnight shift to that. You don't just go into ketosis immediately from going into this glucose-fed state. During that period, which is, you know, varies by the person, varies by the gender even, um, from roughly two to four days, your body has to come up with some other fuel. And the fuel that it comes up with is proteins. <laughs> and it can't use proteins for fuel as they are. It has to convert them to glucose. That's called gluconeogenesis. It is not an easy process for your body to do. And your body, you know, I'm, I'm speculating here, your body's making it difficult for you <laughs> so to give you some disincentive to, to do that. But for whatever reason, it can feel quite often miserable. So as you are in that state, you may get some of those symptoms that you were talking about, that just feeling of, well, there are all kinds of bad ways that it can express itself. Now, I will just quickly add here, 
people hear, oh my God, I'm burning proteins for, you know, two or three days. Uh, my muscles are going to shrivel. You know, what's going to happen to my heart? Let's remember we have proteins in every single cell in our body. It's in all kinds of structures. What fasting doctors and scientists think is happening is that the old and worn out proteins are being broken down first. And then when you refeed, they're replaced with healthy new proteins. If that's the case, then we should welcome this burning of proteins. Now, again, that's, you know, in large part speculation, but we know that this is true from the way other, we know it's at least generally a true principle from the way other diseases work. If you fast and you have, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, you fast and you lose 10% of your body weight, but you've got some sort of, you know, skin rash or something, you would think you would just lose 10% of the rash, right? If your body just burned everything equally and evenly. Well, that's not what happens. 100% of your skin rash may go away, but you've only lost 10% of your weight. What's going on? It seems as though the body is preferentially selecting the crap that it doesn't need and getting rid of it first and then, you know, preserving all of the essential things. There's no evidence, for instance, that this protein burn during day two through four uh, is weakening your heart or uh, weakening your muscles. As soon as you refeed, your muscles are the same as they ever were, maybe even better. So, yeah, yeah, well said. Well said. The amazing innate intelligence at work, right? Looking for the damaged protein, the damaged cells. Let's use that first. Why? You know, the human body is very, very smart. So a, a billion years of evolution, right? You, let's give it some credit. It figured a few things out, right? Give it some credit. And yeah, you're right. You know, a couple of things. So I've taken thousands of people through different variations of fasting. And I always like to get them metabolically flexible before I take them into a longer fast. So that means, you know, tapping into ketosis for a little bit and then pairing fasting with it. Because to your point, Steve, if you don't have that flexibility, yeah, you'll be breaking down a lot of protein. There's also this kind of diuresis process as you drop insulin very fast, you release excess electrolytes. So you got to make sure those electrolytes are up. Uh, and then a third thing I've seen, a lot of people that are really toxic with heavy metals and other toxins, as they start to utilize and mobilize fat cells, those toxins get released and they feel awful. So using a binder, you know, using maybe drinking some hydrogen water. So there's different things to consider. That's why it's important to study, get the book, learn all about fasting, and then work with somebody to kind of guide you. Which leads me to the last question. Actually, I have two final questions as we wrap this up. First one is, I'm a big believer of, of my favorite vitamin in, in the world, Steve. It's called vitamin G. I think it's the most powerful drug. You can't overdose on it. And I call it vitamin gratitude. So I want to ask you, what are you grateful for today, Steve? Uh, well, you know, the obvious answer, of course, is getting to talk with you. But uh, the, the bigger answer is, my health was horrid, as I said, in my 40s, right? And I got it back through fasting. Um, and I'm just grateful that I'm even alive here to be able to share some of these stories. And, and, and I hope to have given a, a book to people that can help them with their lives. So if, um, you know, I was, I was on a podcast the other day and someone said, you know, what's your biggest dream for this? You know, you want to become an international bestseller? You want to, I said, I said, of course, that would be fantastic. But truly, if, if my, you know, three years of work helped like four people that would be uh, that would make the entire effort worthwhile. So I'm just grateful for the chance to be able to, I hope, help some folks. Yeah, you are. And it's going to be way more than four people. I can tell you that. The book is called The Oldest Cure in the World. You could find it on paperback, on Audible, on Amazon. Uh, where else can I get the book, Steve? 
Anywhere books are sold, you can get it at bookshop.org. If you want to help out independent bookstores, they're a fantastic online bookstore. Um, and you can find more information about it at my website, which is stevehendricks.org. And there are some you know, links there as well. Your website's great. I'm going to put a link for it down below because you have some great videos on fasting on it. So it's stevehendricks.org. And then I love the idea of supporting local bookshops. Did you say that was bookstop.org? Is that the website? Bookshop.org. Yeah, they give up some chunk of their profit, you know, they give to your local bookstore. Awesome. And you're not on really on social media. I couldn't find you on Instagram, huh? Not much. I do have an Instagram account, but it's only for doing like an Instagram live sort of interview like this. So yeah, I'm just very old school, but I'm pretty good at responding to emails and it's on my, my emails on my website. So if people do want to connect, get in touch, have a question, throw it my way. That said, I don't know when this is going out. It's probably, probably not. This interview is not going out for a little while. A couple of weeks. Ah, okay. Well, too late. Well, I, I will tell you this. I'm doing a Reddit, ask me anything uh, tomorrow. Uh, it will already have been out. But if you're interested, I'm there. I'm already getting a ton of really interesting questions. So if you have a question, and you probably do similar to, you know, ones people have asked, you know, go, go check that out. It'll be archived. And I'm sure we'll have a lot of great information and back and forth. Awesome, Steve. I want to thank you for your dedicated research to the art of fasting and letting us know how important it is to get into this fasted state. Thank you for your book. Thank you for your time. I really enjoyed the conversation, my friend. Thanks, Ben. It's been great. Appreciate it. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I I loved it. Uh, he's awesome. He's got some great research and his book is incredible. It's a big book and well worth it. So head to the link down below if you want to get his book. It's available right now called The Oldest Cure in the World. We'll also drop his website down below. And if you want to watch the video version of today's podcast interview, that could be found on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash ketocamp. Share this with a friend. Hey, let me know if you're going to change your fasting schedule around. Maybe leave the podcast a rating and review and let us know that you're going to change your fasting schedule around. I want to know how that works for you as well. Share this with a friend. Uh, leave a podcast rating and review and follow me on Instagram at the Benazadi. If you want to learn more about my health coaching program, message me with the word energy on Instagram, E-N-E-R-G-Y on Instagram. The Benazadi is my handle. Thank you so much for spending part of your day with Steve and myself. I love you. I appreciate you. I've got vitamin G through the roof for you. I'll see you in the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.